0: you are listening to you are not broken the only podcast that combines science medicine and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life and i'm your host board certified female urologist dr kelly kasperson Hey friends, I am super excited today to have on Dr. Kara, who is another urologist, and I love having the urologist on the podcast. He lives in Houston, Texas, practices at Baylor, and has dedicated his clinical and research efforts to treat three main areas, men's health, sexual medicine, and hormone replacement therapy. So he is a shoe-in natural for this podcast. His basic science research, he's so well-published, his 15 book chapters, recently on the Peter Atia podcast, which now you have to put on your bio, and uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Absolutely. So why is it, we're going to jump in and start talking about testosterone. Why is testosterone so interesting to you?
1: It's been very interesting. You know, I think it's all started back in 2007 when I finished my fellowship and we were taught that testosterone is dangerous for prostate cancer. It's like putting fuel on the fire. And I remember that. And I said to my mentor, I said, where's the article that shows that it's dangerous? And what we found was that there was no article. In fact, it started in 1941 by Huggins and Hodges, and it was based on one patient that was a myth that said testosterone ain't causes prostate cancer. And so there was a lot of unknowns with testosterone. There's a lot of fears, the unnecessary fears. And more importantly, there's a lot of people who benefit from testosterone. I mean, it has a profound impact on a patient's quality of life. So it's always intrigued me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was taught the same thing in urology. Like the only Nobel Prize won by a urologist was the showing low T fuel to the fire of prostate cancer. It was always that Nobel Prize that I think kept everybody from actually questioning that.
1: Kelly, based on one patient, by the way, 1941, one patient. But, you know, I will say this, and this is important. So for many years, we're taught that it's dangerous, and then we started realizing maybe it's safe for prostate cancer. And then something amazing happened in 2018. Our society, the American Neurologic Association, put out those first testosterone guidelines, and they stated that patients should be informed that testosterone does not increase the risk of prostate cancer. And that was a strong recommendation. So that was a big deal because before 2018, patients would come to me and say, I Googled it. I saw that testosterone causes prostate cancer. And I say, wait, now it's the guidelines are out. We now have data to support that it does increase the risk of prostate cancer. I think the part that always bothered me a little bit and we still have more research to do is that if a patient has a history of prostate cancer, The guidelines say, you know, it's unclear about the risk-benefit ratio that we don't know. But there are some amazing studies now showing that testosterone is used therapeutically to treat metastatic prostate cancer. That's the BAT therapy out of Hopkins, which just blows my mind because who would have thought 10 years ago, I can give someone high doses of testosterone to treat their metastatic prostate cancer.
0: Yeah, what's amazing to me is the the sea change with testosterone and prostate cancer in such a short period of time. And I bring it up a lot because of the fear of hormones and breast cancer and people thinking that that's never, the needle's never going to be moved on that. And to me, I'm like, it's going to be moved. It's just coming after the prostate cancer needle got moved. I mean, we have guys now that are on active surveillance for prostate cancer, which means... Known diagnosis, but we're not taking it out with a scalpel or radiating it. They were on testosterone. They want to continue for their quality of life, and we let them continue now, which we wouldn't have done 10, 15 years ago. It's really a sea change.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think that we still have to say we need we need more studies. We don't have a lot of trials and studies in men with a history of prostate cancer active surveillance. But you're correct. There is a movement in urology to move towards active surveillance. Many men now, we don't operate on many of those men with low Gleason scores and one or two cores. And so those men come into the office and say, okay, I know I'm on active surveillance. Now I have low T and I'd like to have testosterone. I say, okay, let's talk about it. The reality is that we know that one in six men, one in six men are walking around with prostate cancer. And if you look at Every single study with testosterone, there's been never a study suggesting that those men receiving testosterone are at a higher risk of getting prostate cancer than those men not receiving testosterone. So I tell my colleagues, if you're treating 60 men in your practice with testosterone, I promise you that you're giving 10 men with active prostate cancer testosterone and they're not lighting up. You're basically doing an active surveillance t Therapy. But again, I just want to be cautious. I think, you know, many of these I say we should do under a clinical trial. We do need more studies before we can say it's safe.
0: Yeah, it's, but it's just amazing to me how fast that has changed anything that's happened in my career i think is fast (laughs) and (laughs) and i think the conversation is going to happen as as a corollary and again all cancers are different but the five million breast cancer survivors who are now struggling with low hormones and they're clamoring for some help and i think that's going to be the next big exciting thing for hormones in women as we're kind of normalizing that hormones are healthy, hormones are quality of life, hormones can be safe. So I always come back to prostate cancer to be like, well, look what happened over here. And a lot of the gynecologists don't know that, right? Like people who only take care of women don't know what we've been doing on on the men's side of things.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting because in the women's side, I haven't seen, which I think would be very interesting, giving high doses of estrogen to treat breast cancer. I've not heard of it. They did it. Okay.
0: They did it. This is decades ago before we had tamoxifen. So tamoxifen is more, that was on my, I think I I talked about it with Avram Blooming on my podcast. He's a medical oncologist. But pre-tamoxifen, they did high doses of estrogen to treat breast cancer. Now, there were some side effects with that. Tamoxifen was better tolerated than super high doses. And I think I'm getting the story right. But basically, that was the treatment until we got newer treatments. And then estrogen became very bad. And now it's not bad again.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but now... And there's
0: 20 years of, of medical science summarized in two sentences. <laughs> yeah.
1: But, you know, if you look at the Hopkins... Is it, so it came out in 2015. When it came out in John Hopkins. They took men with metastatic prostate cancer. They gave them high doses of testosterone, 400 milligrams IM of testosterone. At the same time, they gave them Lupron. And what they would do is they see these... They call it BAT, bipolar androgen therapy. And in that first initial study, 50% reduction in PSA. These are men with metastatic prostate cancer and 50% reduction in metastatic disease. And then just more recently, they came out with this amazing study called the Transformer Study. Essentially, when men become resistant to abiraterone, castrate-resistant prostate cancer, they have a choice of going on to enzalutamide. Well, they said, well, we're going to give them enzalutamide or we'll randomize them to BAT, high doses of testosterone. And guess what? They found no difference in overall survival, Men who got bat felt better. And while enzyme is $7,000 a month, testosterone is about $50 a month. So interesting concept, how the paradigm is changing.
0: Yeah, there's actually some testosterone data, and this is going back to older stuff, but testosterone being used to treat breast cancer too. Like back, again, before we had treatments.
1: Very interesting.
0: It'll it'll be interesting for that to swing around also. So we know with menopause, the ovaries stop making testosterone, estrogen. Tell me, what's the truth about men and testosterone lowering with age? Is that considered like natural like menopause is? Is it truly like two to four percent a year as men age? What's the natural course of testosterone over a man's life?
1: Yeah. So when I finished my fellowship, I thought that there was this concept called andropause or male menopause. And I would give lectures and I'd talk about andropause. But many years later, I found out that's not true. There's no andropause. If you take a very healthy male into his 80s, you will not see a significant decline in total testosterone levels. You're right, it's about one to 2% apoptosis of the latex cells starting at 20 years of age. It will go down with time, but that's not sufficient to make a man severely hypogonadal. The reason why they become hypogonadal is because the acquisition of comorbid conditions as they get older, diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome. Biggest culprit, obviously, is obesity. And we'll talk about that. So as men develop conditions, sleep apnea, they will start dropping their testosterone level. It is not due to aging alone. Now, to be fair, SHBG does go up as men age, and it does go up significantly. So the free testosterone will drop. So that's true. The free testosterone will drop quite precipitously. But this concept of aging alone puts me into hypogonadism, and low T is not True, it's a slight decline, but not enough to be significant in most cases.
0: You're the right person to ask about this. I have not seen a study yet. Are you doing this study? The, looking at the new weight loss drugs, Wegovy, you know, all those.
1: Yes, so we are, and we got IRB approval. We're looking at semaglutide to look at. Now, I, mean, I know the answer, uh, but we're doing two things with semaglutide. We're looking at fertility, and we're looking at T-levels but because we're looking at semen counts, two semen counts before, and then at six weeks, and then at 12 weeks, and then we're falling T levels. Now, the answer is pretty clear. So if you look at bariatric surgery, or you look at people who do diet and exercise, if a patient loses 10% of their body weight, just 10% of the body weight, they can gain about 85 to 90 nanogram per deciliter in serum testosterone. Not bad. Usually that's not a lot, but it's something. If they just lose 15%, of their body weight, they will gain almost 250 nanogram per deciliter in serum testosterone. So it's not linear. It's almost curvilinear in the line. So 15% body weight's a lot. So the thing is patients can lose the weight, but then they put the weight back on. And so it's not sustainable. But the bariatric surgery literature suggests that you lose 15% of your body weight, you gain 250 nanogram. So we do prescribe a lot of semaglutide for many reasons. So we are doing a study right now looking at fertility, And looking at testosterone levels, which I'm assuming are going to go up when they lose the weight. Uh, We're going to talk about testosterone today. And we know about all the great things people can feel, you know, energy, sex drive, libido, muscle mass. But weight loss also has a profound effect on the way patients feel. A profound effect. And uh, many of these patients, if they lose, if a man loses, or a woman loses 10, 15, 20 pounds, they feel amazing. They feel absolutely amazing. The problem with semaglutide is that you can also lose muscle mass. And it can be significant muscle muscle mass. And so it is imperative that these patients continue to lift weights. And we are seeing anecdotally, and I will publish it, that if you put the patient on testosterone supplementation, which is anabolic, it does help mitigate the muscle mass loss. If they put, put them on T, they exercise, and they're on semaglutide, you will mitigate the muscle mass loss. You still have some. But I do think that the semaglutide is very, very effective.
0: Yeah, that was my, I was texting Justin Dubin because I know he did research. I'm like, somebody's got to be looking at testosterone levels with these meds because there's got to be something profound happening with it. My brother pointed this out to me, which is silly because I'm a urologist, but my brother who's not in medicine is like, why is the only legit reason for women to get testosterone to like sleep with men? And I'm like, yeah, low desire is really the reason that women are getting testosterone. I'm like, is it just because we need more data? But I'm like, The profound benefits in men on cardiovascular, diabetes reduction, you know, Lean body mass. Where is this with the other gender? What's your insight on female and testosterone benefits?
1: Yeah. So the problem is is that you know roughly when there was Intrinsa, which was a patch, and it was about twenty years ago, that was almost going to get through. I think through the FDA, it was pretty close. Roughly around that time, the Women's Health Initiative came out in two thousand and three, and so the FDA was very averse hormones, and so Intrinsa never made it out. Some of the studies were done at Baylor with the, the testosterone patch with. Buster, Dr. Buster. And so, but it became available throughout the world. So you could go to Europe, you can go to Australia and it was available. So it was very unfortunate. And even today, 20 years later, you can't walk into Walgreens and say, give me the testosterone for women. It does not exist, which is very sad. So we have to do a workaround. And so my patients typically will use testosterone in three ways. They'll either use a cream, which is my least favorite, because of creams depend on skin penetration and so not all levels are not everyone gets a good level they use a pellets and pellets are okay i think they're fine some women love the pellets or they use injectables and typically what you'll have to do is compound it i usually compound it at 50 milligrams per ml we typically start at 0.1 cc once a week and that tends to work very well as long as she's not needle phobic that works really well and i, I tell my patients you know in women you Got to start low and you got to start intentionally low and work your way up. If you overshoot a man accidentally, you can always bring it down. But if a woman gets acne or facial hair, you know, she's upset. So you really want to start low. So 0.1 once a week and we kind of work our way up is very good. You got to remember in women, the typical conversion is one tenth the dose. Just a rough idea what a man uses, a woman uses one tenth. And then check the free T. because remember in women, the SHBG can be very high. One of my mentors, Erwin Goldstein, I know he's on the show recently taught me that, you know, if a woman takes oral contraceptive pills, and even if she stops, but she took it for five years or greater, her SHBG levels can stay elevated for a very, very long time and may may not ever normalize. So you have to look at the free T and you may have to compensate by giving her high levels of T because of the SHBG.
0: Yeah. Access is a big problem because gynecologists are not comfortable with testosterone. Urologists are fine with testosterone. I'm fine with testosterone. Gynecologists are not, by and large, comfortable with testosterone. And then you have female sexual function, which, again, is another big taboo that nobody gets taught about in medical school. So it's like for a woman to access testosterone, it's actually very challenging in the traditional medical settings, which I think is why they're going to these. I had a friend who just saw a woman getting pellets. Her total testosterone was 1,100 from the pellets. But, you know, non-traditional medical setting, just trying to feel better.
1: That's Yeah, that's excessive. You know, sometimes you know, the problem with the pellets is it's hard sometimes to control the levels and you just have to be very, very careful because I tell patients, I can't take the pellet out. So if there's a problem, it's hard to get it out. So we always like to start with something a little more benign, you know, like a, a gel or an injectable so we can control it and then move on to the palate. But you brought up something very important. You talked about benefits. And I would agree that in women, libido goes up significantly with testosterone. But there are other health benefits. So muscle mass is important. There were many studies in the past that looked at testosterone for bone mineral formation in women. So we talk about estrogen and we talk about vitamin D and calcium, but we don't talk about testosterone for bone mineral density. Great studies in men showing that if you give them testosterone, they get an increase in bone mineral density. The same is for women. And many women will talk about sleep, just like in men with improvement in sleep and depression. We have nice studies in men in depression and mood, and women tend to benefit the same as well. So it's not just about her libido. It's about her overall well-being. And it's unfortunate we don't have it on label for women. It's unfortunate that many women are not offered even offer testosterone when their testosterone levels are very low and they have these symptoms.
0: Did you know around one in 10 women are dealing with a distressing low libido? It could be a medical condition known as HSDD, hypoactive sexual desire disorder. But the good news is low libido can be treated. Addy, or flabanserin, is the FDA approved little pink pill to treat HSDD. Addy is clinically proven to increase sexual desire in certain premenopausal women. A simple way to think about HSDD is to think of your brain as a browser with lots of open tabs. When it comes to having sex, a healthy brain will close all of those tabs to focus on the intimate moment. However, a brain with HSDD is unable to close those tabs and the mood is lost. Good thing there's Addie. Ask your doctor or go to Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com to
2: see if Addie is right for you. Addy is for premenopausal women with acquired generalized hypoactive sexual desire disorder, HSDD, who have not had problems with low sexual desire in the past, who have low sexual desire no matter the type of sexual activity, the situation, or the sexual partner. The low sexual desire is troubling to them and is not due to a medical or mental health problem, problems in the relationship, or medicine or other drug use. Addy is not for use in men or to enhance sexual performance. Your risk of severe low blood pressure and fainting is increased if you drink one to two standard alcoholic drinks close in time to your Addy dose. Wait at least two hours after drinking before taking Addy at bedtime. Your risk of severe low blood pressure and fainting is also increased if you take certain prescriptions, over-the-counter or herbal medications or have liver problems. Low blood pressure and fainting can happen when you take Addy even if you don't drink alcohol or take other medicines. Do not take if you are allergic to any of the ingredients in Addy. Allergic reactions may include hives, itching or trouble breathing. Sleepiness, sometimes serious, can occur. Common side effects include dizziness, nausea, tiredness, difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep and dry mouth. See full PI and medication guide, including box warning at addy.com forward slash PI or call 844-PINK-PILL. I want
0: to see more data on the role of testosterone in chronic pain, because we know testosterone mitigates how much you sense pain. I'm like, what's the role of supplementing a low testosterone in chronic pain patients and really helping their pain?
1: It's also a vicious cycle because the number one cause of low testosterone is chronic opioid use. So 74% of patients who take chronic opioids will have a significant drop in their T-level within four hours because it not only hits the LH production from the pituitary, but it shuts down latex cell production and testosterone. So it's this double-edged sword. You got chronic pain, you're taking pain meds, you drop your T, which may exacerbate your symptoms of pain. So it's uh, really unfortunate.
0: Interesting. With, with the weight loss, is it does your testosterone go up? I'm not talking any maybe anybody or maybe male here, but does your testosterone go up just because you have less aromatase from the adipose cells converting to estrogen? Or are you actually making more testosterone when you lose body fat? What's the mechanism of raising tea when you lose body fat?
1: Yeah, so when you lose body fat, the number one cause is because you've decreased fat and fat contains aromatase. And remember, aromatase eats testosterone and converts to estrogen. So we get to keep more of our tea. Remember though, that fat cells also increase leptin, which can inhibit LA secretion as well. And remember that also estrogen, estrogen is a feedback and negative feedback for tea production. So not only are you eating up more of your tea, but you're feeding back and inhibiting the production at the same time. And so you get hit in multiple locations. And so that's why, you know, weight loss, and weight loss has such a profound effect on tea levels. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing.
0: So when people are, you know, or if people are like, well, I don't want to take tea yet. I, some people will be like, am I going to be stuck on it for life? If I start taking tea, a natural way would be weightlifting adipose reduction, stopping alcohol. Yeah.
1: So th- let's think. talk about this. That I tell patients there's three categories for testosterone, natural ways to make tea, medications to make you make it naturally, and for me to give you testosterone. That's it. There's no other way. If we talk about natural ways, well, there's been some. You know, uh, Mark Goldstein first popularized this concept of varicoseal repairs. Now, fixing a varicoseal, raising tea is not an indication, but in many studies, showed about 100 nanogram per deciliter increase in serum testosterone. We know that if you fix sleep apnea, because remember, when someone has sleep apnea and the oxygen level is low, that actually blunts the LH secretion from the pituitary. So when O2 levels drop, LH secretion goes down and testosterone production goes down. And many studies have shown that if you improve sleep apnea, whether with surgery, CPAP, you could increase serum testosterone, okay, or improve your sleep, if you and I for five days restrict our sleep to five, uh, five hours a night, we drop about 15%, 20% of our T-level. So just sleeping better makes a big difference as well. And so when you put it all together, sleep apnea, diet, exercise, varicose, these all can add up, but it takes work. Someone's got to do the work. So when the patient comes into the office, they say, uh, just give me the pill you know, or just give me the injection. Uh, I hear what you're saying, but I say, look, there is a natural way to do this if you want to do it. And if you decide to take testosterone and you then make these changes, I may be able to get you off. So theoretically it is for life if you don't make any changes, but if you do make some changes, we could potentially get you off. So that's like level one. And I love level one. I I tell people, I mean, I, stress this the most. The most exciting part of my job is level one. It's not giving the pill or the injection. It's talking about the four pillars, diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. Kelly, I don't have a pill on the planet stronger than diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. And every one of us, every one of us can do better on any one of these four. So I tell my patients, okay, if you decide to focus on one of them, just focus on one, it will have a profound effect on your quality of life. Now imagine if you focus on four, you know, and so we really, this is the fun part and they get it. And I think a lot of them, you know, they're wanting to feel better, but I said, look, meet me halfway. You focus on diet, exercise, sleep, and stress, I'll focus on the hormones and working on your overall health and together, very powerful. So that's what we do. But some patients, we want it, they want to raise their own natural testosterone. So we use medications like HCG, clomiphene citrate, anastrozole. HCG is on label, uh, Clomid and Nanastrozole are off-label, and these help men make their own natural testosterone. So I say, look, I'm not giving it to you. I'm going to give you a pill to make you make it, and that will preserve your fertility. So this way you will not become infertile and it will not shut down your natural production as well. I don't like giving young men testosterone. I just don't. I feel like he's, you know, 30 years old and 25 years old. And what's the end game? I got to do it for another 50, 60 years. If he can work with me on level one and maybe use some Clomid for a while, I think that may be the way to go.
0: I love it. Do you see or can you share with with our people, erectile dysfunction is a big problem, more way more common than is talked about. Lots of shame. Lots of relationships fall apart over that. Can you get erectile dysfunction to reverse with your four?
1: absolutely oh my i'm so People glad you need to are, hear
0: uh, this they just think viagra is the only thing
1: i was involved in the aua guidelines in 2018 for ed and we actually now as first-line therapy, say lifestyle modification and uh, dr esposito was the first one in, and she showed this in jam i think it was 2004 i have to look at the date but basically diet and exercise alone prospective two years 110 men 55 get diet and exercise 55 don't get any intervention you follow them two years Diet and exercise lose a lot of weight, and guess what? A four-point increase in the IIEF, which is just with diet and exercise, no pills. So ED can be reversed with uh, lifestyle modification. But like everything, it requires work, and many men just say, "Give me the Viagra," you know, "I'll deal with that later." And I and I think if they, the big picture is, you know, let's talk about lifestyle modification ed we can talk about this first sign of a heart attack in many men even if a man gets ed today 15 percent will have a heart attack within seven years 15 percent and if you look at patients who get an mi ed precedes it by usually 36 months so and typically there's many theories one is the arterial diameter theory remember the penile arteries are one to two millimeters coronaries three to four millimeters carotid six millimeters if you're going to include an artery you're going to include the penile artery first the coronaries you can include the coronaries before the carotid so it is a window to let you know about a man's health there's not a better barometer of a man's health than his sexual health because it incorporates his mental health and his physical health right you have to have both you know if you're depressed anxious
0: doesn't work if you're anxious and depressed
1: yeah i mean it's it's you, you maybe have the best physical health Possible, but if you have significant mental health, that will affect your sexual health. And if you have great mental health, but you're in poor physical health, that will affect your sexual health. So the best barometer of a man's health is his sexual function. And I tell the residents that. I say that th- this is a window of telling you what's currently happening or what's going to happen in the future.
0: I mean, to me, I'm like, it's, it's a canary in the coal mine, right? It's like an actual sign because you can't see your coronaries changing. You could see your penis not functioning pretty well. What's the role, people ask me all the time, the role of DHEA, oral supplementation, unregulated, not FDA approved. It's in the it's in every supplement store. What's the role of DHEA in all of this and testosterone? Do we have great data? I always tell people we don't have great data. What do you think about it?
1: Yeah, so there's different, I say I call them strengths of androgens. You know, DHT is the most potent than testosterone. And then DHEA is what we we'll call a mild androgen made from the adrenals. And in men, if you were to supplement with DHEA, the amount you would need to supplement would be far greater than what we typically give a man. So there's not a lot of great data on benefits of DHEA supplementation. DHEA gets converted to testosterone. So if you're already taking testosterone, I think that's sufficient. The exception is in women. Women, I can raise a premenopausal woman's testosterone significantly by giving her DHEA. It makes a huge difference and it's natural. So uh, I talked about treating men and women. When I treat women, young women, I like to give them DHEA to raise their natural testosterone. I typically like to get it from a compounding pharmacy because I don't know what I'm getting over the counter, right? You and I can make a a supplement today, Kelly, and put it on GNC, and it's really not regulated. Efficacy studies and safety studies, not there. And so I like to typically at least go to a compounder, which gives me a little bit more sense of security that, hey, this is what I'm making. So so I think that's important. DHEA for men, probably not as useful. DHEA for women, very useful.
0: Why would you give a premenopausal woman DHEA instead of testosterone?
1: For one, it's teratogenic. So if she gets pregnant, there's a problem.
0: Okay. So DHEA is fine?
1: DHEA is fine. There's not been a lot of data that DHEA is teratogenic. It's a natural supplement. I still warn them and say, look, still be careful if you're taking hormones and you do conceive. That's important. But I just, the same reason why I don't like giving younger men hormones, uh, because it's a long period of time, I don't like giving... Younger women hormones. I'd like to try to give them something more natural until they need it. Okay. What dose? DHE. I use ten milligrams for women daily, and I compound it, and then I just follow DHE level, and it works really well. If you look and look at T levels, she'll convert and she'll produce her own T without having to give her T, which is really nice. Uh, in men, it doesn't work that way. I just have to give them tea. Some men say, "I, I want. I'm low in DHE. I'd like to take it." I say, "Sure." You're more than welcome to take it. No issues. It's
0: not going to hurt you, but it probably won't help you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Tell Let's talk about the role. You were talking to me earlier about the role of testosterone in Peyronie's disease. We'll define Peyronie's for people who don't know what that is. And then the role of testosterone in that disease.
1: Yeah. So Peyronie's is an abnormal curvature of the penis when it's erect. And initially, when I finished my fellowship, we were taught that 3% of men in the world may suffer from this condition. This was called the Cologne study. But actually, it's almost up to 9% of men. Now think about this. 9% of all men in the world suffer from a condition that most people have never even heard of. And Peyronie's essentially means when the penis is erect, it's an abnormal curvature. The most common curvature is when it curves up 80% of the time. And if the curvature is greater than 60 degrees, then it's prohibitive for intercourse. And so there is this sensation of depression, disfigurement. These patients are truly, many of them come in very depressed because they feel like they're disfigured. And uh, in 2015, we had our first FDA-approved treatment for Peronis disease, which is out of the U.S., called xyflex or collagenase, where we can inject a medication into the plaque. Now, patients say, I don't understand, doc, what is this? Is this a cancer? Or is it? I say, no, think about it this way. Think about it like I have a balloon, and I put a piece of tape on the balloon. If I blow the balloon up, what do you think is going to happen? The entire balloon will expand, but it will curve in the direction of the tape because that area will not expand. So the way we solve this problem is either to remove the tape by putting in medication into that tape and dissolve it, Or I can put stitches on the opposite side or tape on the opposite side to make it straight. And so that – they get it, and I think that makes a lot of sense. But what's interesting is in 2000 – I think it was nine, when we published the first abstract showing that men – with low testosterone levels were much more likely to have Peyronie's disease. And I thought that was very interesting. It was like 74%. And Abe Morgenthaler that same year published as well, like roughly 76%. And his paper, he showed that the more severe the low T, the more severe the curvature. So we, I asked my resident at that time, I said, what is the reason? There has to be an explanation. And we came up with the explanation because we found it in the dermatologic literature. In The dermatologic literature, you'll read that testosterone is used for wound healing, It's extremely important for wound healing. And if you go to a burn unit many times, they'll give them testosterone to help with the wound healing. So I call this a double hit theory because men who have lower testosterone levels tend to have decreased rigidity and decreased erections. And so if you're 100% rigid, you're fine. You're in trouble when you're 90% rigid, 80% rigid set because you'll be able to penetrate, but you're going to buckle and you're going to injure the penis. So you'll penetrate, but you'll injure the penis when you have 80 90% rigidity. And then once you do injure the penis, you're less likely to heal because there's a lack of testosterone to help with the healing process. So I think that double-hit theory contributes a lot. You're more likely to injure, you're less likely to heal, and that's why patients with low t are more likely to have Peyronie's disease. So we started a study several years ago, giving men testosterone. It was to give them testosterone in the active phase to, I don't think testosterone reverses the curvature, but I do think it helps prevent further curvature of disease, which is very important. Because if a guy comes in and he's 30 degrees curve, and I say, if I get your 30 down to zero, that's great. But I'm also helping him if I prevent that 30 to go into 70. You know what I mean? And so preventing further curvature of disease, I think is very important.
0: That's interesting because the guidelines say hang out until the active phase is over before you then do treatment. And this might be something of like you can actually do something during that active phase.
1: Yes, and I was part of those guidelines. So I wrote those, you know, one of the 10 that we were on in 2015. But you're right, in the AUA guidelines, the treatment is just anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs, when they come into the active phase. And there's a reason for that. Because Kelly, if someone comes in, I tell them the 15, 40, 45 rule. 15% of the time, it's going to get better, it just gets better during the first year. 40% of the time, it stays the same, but 45% of the time, it's going to get worse. And so, what the thought was, what's the point of starting all these treatment options? Why don't you wait till it's stabilized and then treat? But I do think that there is some benefit in preventing further curvature of disease in the active phase. And to me, that's a win.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. That'll change the way I think about Peyronies when they come in, <laughs> for sure.
1: Some people use, we didn't talk about this, but there's also this off-label use, which got very interesting in 2010, the penile stretching devices. You remember, so these penile stretching, the most common one I use is called Restorex. It comes out of the Mayo Clinic. But essentially, they came from the porn sites originally because these, por- these devices men would wear for making the penis longer and wider. In 2010, we started using urology to make the penis straighter. Peronis disease. And um, again, it wasn't in the guidelines, off-label use, but there is some data suggests that wearing those devices can make the penis longer, wider, but also straighter. And there may be some benefit as well.
0: This amazing podcast could not happen without the support of our sponsors. One sponsor I'm so excited about is UberLube. I've been using UberLube and recommending them for years. I give away lube packets in my clinic. Adding lube with intimacy is a no-brainer. And a good silicone lube shows that when you play, you mean business. Uberlube is long-lasting, super slippery, and doesn't have any of that sticky tackiness of the water-based lubes. I find it's great for dry skin, especially skin affected by hormone changes. It's so clean and useful that people use it for their hair and to prevent chafing with sporting activities too. Next time you reach for the lube, reach for Uberlube. Check out the link in the bio with 10% off. Enter the code not broken at uberlube.com. You sent me an article this summer that, like, literally blew. I was like reading it in the surgeon's lounge and telling the general surgeons how fascinating this is. The article was in the New England Journal of Medicine about 10 years ago. They took healthy young men, blocked their testosterone. Like, to me, I'm like, who signed up for this study? <laughs> How much was paid? Like, what did you? they have to do to get these people? Healthy young men, normal testosterone, blocked their testosterone, gave them back testosterone, blocked their conversion of it to estrogen. Quote me if I'm wrong, but they, what they found in, in the men who we gave you normal testosterone back, but we blocked your conversion to estrogen, less sexual health, more erectile dysfunction, less desire, less libido. You nailed it. Did I get that right? And, And showing that there is a role for estrogen in men, even in short term, like long term, I would want to look at those guys and look at bone health. But so my question is, are we under treating men by not addressing estrogen in them? Is that what you got from that paper or or what should we get from that paper?
1: No, no, you're exactly right. That was the Finkelstein article, New England Journal of Medicine, 2013, big article showing that many of the effects that we see from testosterone are not the testosterone. It's actually the conversion into estrogen and the estrogen is what's giving us the benefit. Finkelstein wasn't the first to show this. Dr. Ramasamy at the University of Miami when he was a fellow here showed also that estrogen was the biggest correlate to libido in men and it wasn't the testosterone. And so there's two important points. I think that estrogen is important, but I think too much estrogen can be bad. And so we call this the inverted U, where low estrogen will affect you negatively sexually, but high too high of estrogen will also. So we want to put you in the middle. When I finished my fellowship, we were giving a lot of anastrazole. We thought, oh, men don't need estrogen. They're men. And we women need estrogen. So we would give them aromatase inhibitors and give them a lot of anastrozole. we shut the estrogen down. And a lot of these men felt lousy. They felt like low energy low libido, erectile dysfunction. And we quickly realized the goal is not to shut the estrogen down. It is to manage it and put it in a sweet spot. I tend to like to keep the estrogen around 30 to 50 range, you know.
0: That's what I was gonna say. I'm like, I think 40, maybe. If you if you made me pick a male estrogen,
1: yeah, right in that range, I think is really helpful. But I think if you're getting up to like 60, 70, it's a little too high, and I think your estrogen 20 is a little too low. So it's it's you should instead of throwing a bunch of anastrozol. In a lot of clinics, what they do is we call it the trifecta. They give them testosterone, HCG, and anastrozol, and they start the HCG and the anastrozol before they even start the. They give them the T at the same time, I say, wait a minute, why don't you check the estrogen? And if it's high, give very, very small doses to bring it down. But I wouldn't empirically just give an astrozole before I even check the E because it may not convert. So I think estrogen is very important uh, in men, especially for sexual function, and we, we follow it.
0: Are you checking it? Will you If you find a guy with, let's make somebody up who has low T and low E, are you going to give the T, see if he converts a little bit? Or are you going to give both at the same time? Have you ever given really low dose estrogen to men?
1: I don't, I don't yet. But most men, if you raise the T, will raise the E for, you know, that's what happens. And I think sometimes some of these men have higher T levels and they start getting more libido, but I think it's because they're having higher E levels also. And that may be what's turning it on. And just like Finkelstein showed in that article is a great study, by the way. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, if you want to raise the E in a man, raise the T because 0.3% is converted and you can get it converted over. And and I think that may be the way to do it.
0: Yeah, I love it. So you, there was a big study that came out. I was at the AUA this spring. They were super excited about this study to come out. You were part of it, New England Journal of Medicine study that came out looking at supplementing testosterone in men who had low testosterone and had high risk or already had cardiovascular disease. Why was this such an important study to do?
1: Great study. I got to put this in the context of a story. So For many years before 2010, numerous studies suggested that giving testosterone to men did not increase the risk of a heart attack and that low testosterone actually increased the risk of heart attack. And in 2010, one study came out suggesting, hey, maybe if you give testosterone to men, it may increase the risk of a heart attack. This study never had a heart attack as an endpoint. It was looking at frail men giving higher doses of testosterone, but it was like a signal. Then three studies came after that in 2013, 2014, totally suggesting, and these are retrospective, non-randomized, non-placebo chart review studies suggesting if you give testosterone, you may increase the risk of a heart attack. So in September of 2014, the FDA looked at the data. There was a session in, in D.C. where they said, you know what? We agree. It doesn't look like it increases the risk of a heart attack. It's inconclusive. But we want, we strongly recommend a large study We want a large, randomized, placebo-controlled study looking at testosterone with the primary endpoint of MACE, MI. And uh, that was the birth of the TRAVERSE trial. And so the TRAVERSE trial, the first patient we enrolled was in 2018. We just published it in June of 2023. And it was over 5,000 patients, a randomized placebo-controlled trial. And what did it show? It showed that there was no increase in MACE, no increase in heart attack. That was a very expensive, very large study. But there are numerous other sub-studies that are coming out of this. And one was published two months ago And that study that came out was on sexual function. And what we showed was that there was a significant increase in libido in men who started testosterone, sustainable all the way out to two years. Fantastic. But testosterone as monotherapy did not improve erectile function. That's interesting, and I I agree with that because even in the AUA guidelines, if you look at all the treatment options for ED, testosterone is not listed as a treatment option. It is monotherapy, it may not be the best therapy, but in combination therapy with a PD-5 inhibitor like Viagra, Levitra may be effective. So the sexual function study came out. The prostate study will come out, and uh, it was already presented in June, so I'm just presenting. You're know, talking about what was presented in June, but the study paper will come out. But no increased risk in high-risk prostate cancer. Fantastic. And most importantly, Kelly, no increase in LUTs. And that's been a controversy for a very long time. No worsening of BPA symptoms. All 5,000 patients got the IPSS scores and looking at changes in, in urinary function and no increased risk. Because if you open the package insert of testosterone products. You will see on the first line, uh, use caution in men with enlarged prostates because this could make their urinary symptoms worse. There's no data to support that. That's in a fetus. If a fetus doesn't see testosterone, the prostate doesn't grow. That's not true in the adult male. But the Traverse trial put that to rest, suggesting there's no worsening of lower urinary tract symptoms. So that's those are some really big studies. A lot more studies are coming out of Traverse. The diabetes trial, the bone mineral density, the anemia, the depression, so many more are gonna come out soon but just a big, big, big win for testosterone and research for us.
0: Big win for testosterone. There was a paper I read a couple of years ago just looking at endogenous testosterone in older women. So these are postmenopausal endogenous testosterone. Nobody was supplemented with anything. And the women who had the higher testosterone levels had lower MACE risk.
1: Mm, Very similar to what we see in a lot of the studies in men. This is so interesting. When the guidelines came out in 2018, they said patients should be informed that low testosterone increases the risk for a heart attack. And that was a strong recommendation. But then the next line said patients should be informed that the risk benefit ratio of giving testosterone is unknown whether it causes a heart attack or not. And so patients would say, look, so wait, I have low testosterone, increases my risk for a heart attack. But if I get testosterone, you don't know if it's going to increase my risk for a heart attack. So I'm stuck. And now we feel, now we know that giving testosterone does not increase the cardiovascular risk. There were three interesting things I should share with you about the Traverse, though, that were a little bit caught off guard or surprised, if you will. There was a slight increased risk of arrhythmias, atrial fib. So that was the increase. There was a slight increased risk, 0.4% versus 0.9% of DVT. So that wasn't very small, but it was there. And slight increased risk of renal insufficiency. That was self-reported. So I do think there are some slight important facts that came out of this that we didn't expect.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's risks to taking anything. And this is like I read that because that's like that's the paragraph before the conclusion that says testosterone's, you know, no worse than placebo, not inferior to placebo in respect to the incidence of major averse cardiac events. So like the conclusion is like testosterone thumbs up is great. Right above it, it's like PE, acute kidney injury, atrial fib, we're all higher. And I have like my my urology gender lens now, right? Of like, what if this was in women? Would it have been published the same way? Because in women, I think the threshold for risk is so much different than men. We're like, hey, it can help you with all these things, but there's some risks. In women, we're like, it's got risks. Nobody should do it. Yeah, Like, it's very different way of treating hormones because this could be estrogen. Estrogen does, tr- orally, not transdermally, increase your DVT risk right? But it prevents osteoporosis. It decreases heart disease by 50%, decreases diabetes by 30%, decreases risk of colon cancer by 30%. And we're like, DVT risk, nobody should do this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm a big proponent on estrogen, particularly vaginal estrogen. It's a huge win for women, but there's this fear still. And you're right. If you look at what happened in 2003, I remember this. I was a resident. I mean, women just dropped the estrogen and progesterone, and many of them just suffered in silence for years just because of one study that later on with had many flaws.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely wild. And you know, the papers that have come out looking at the amount of deaths calculated because people stopped their hormones are very interesting studies to read. So testosterone, it's in the same category as a narcotic, meaning you need a DEA license to prescribe it. You know, I can't put it through my electronic medical record. We don't have a dose that's approved for women. Like there's so many Barriers to getting testosterone. Number one, do you think that the DEA category risk is ever going to come off of testosterone with all this great safety data? Or do you think that's here to stay because of anabolic steroid abuse?
1: There is a, a, a risk for abuse, and patients do like to take higher levels, so that could be somewhat of an issue. You know, when the FDA looked at this in 2014, they found that 25% of men who started testosterone never had a level check prior to starting testosterone. bit of an issue, never had a level checked. I think it was roughly 27% of patients who did start testosterone never had a follow-up testosterone, a little bit of an issue. And so I think just for that sake, there's got to be some, they want to have some regulation on safety because at the end of the day, you should follow the T levels. You look for erythrocytosis, you got to be careful. So I think, you know, it is a hassle because I mean, you have to go through and you got to put it into the Epic and you got to, but I think unless... If we have more safety data, less less abuse, then I don't think they're going to stop.
0: Is the abuse coming from mainstream medical physicians, though?
1: A lot of these patients get it from the gym. Uh, they get a friend. Uh, they're getting it somehow online without a prescription. So it's a little concerning, to be honest yeah, with
0: you. Yeah, because to me, I'm like, why do we have to have the DEA license and, you know, the factor authentic? Like, it's treated like a narcotic. It's in that category.
1: Yeah. You're actually right, so I think it's a, it's concerning, but I don't see it letting up anytime soon.
0: Okay, I was like, if anybody <laughs> knew, if anybody was working on that, yeah. it would be you. What do you know? The data on like the amount of men with hypogonadism, like how big of a problem is it? And of those men, how many are actually getting treated?
1: So there's a so the the issue with there's two different topics. In order to meet the di- the criteria for hypogonadism, you have to have low serum testosterone levels and you have to have signs and symptoms. You have to have both. And so just because someone has low T doesn't mean that they have the condition. So Arujo many years ago showed that, you know, 40% of men over the age of uh, 45 had low T. And, but that's not how many had symptoms. Later on, they showed that, you know, roughly 4% of men below the age of 50 uh, had symptoms and low T. 8% of men above the age of 50 had low symptoms. So, so it's not, I mean, 8%, but 8% of all men is a lot of men. So the Rujo study was probably when I first was like 2009, 2010, early on when I first started my career, and I would, I would quote that study.
0: My argument would be they're, they're not any healthier now, so maybe it's even higher.
1: Great point, because if you look decade by decade, men's testosterone levels are dropping. There was a very Travis and study, decade by decade, T levels drop. Well, what else is happening decade by decade? Obesity. Diabetes metabolic syndrome are skyrocketing decade by decade. So remember at the beginning of this podcast, it's the acquisition of comorbid conditions that drop your T levels. And so obesity, if you look at the United States, is a, a pandemic. I mean, it's just it's just rampant. And every year we're getting worse. We're not getting better. You know, and so it doesn't surprise me that T levels are dropping. So I think that, you know, this issue about levels dropping every year is real. And um, I think that, you know, as a society, if you see patients, if people getting healthier, we may see a reversal in those T levels.
0: And, and sperm levels are going down too, yes?
1: There's some discussion. I, I remember some level, uh, studies looking at sperm levels going down decade by decade as well. That was a big study, WHO study as well. But I think that's also a factor Of we are becoming more unhealthy so i treat a lot of infertility i tell men i say healthier men are more fertile just that's just basic that's you know just the nature you know so if you want to be more fertile you need to be a healthier person diet exercise sleep stress and so i think you're right as we become as a population more unhealthy the sperm counts will go down
0: i love it what's your wish for like Health care, primary care. When they take care of men, do we start knowing testosterone is so low in so many people? Do we start screening at age fifty? What What's kind of your hope of like, where do you want this problem to to go?
1: Yeah. So uh, we talked about the best barometer for man's health is a sexual health because it incorporates this physical and mental health. The best test you can get a man on a man for his health is a testosterone level. It is indicative, I think, of cardiovascular health bone mineral density, diabetes risk, uh, sexual health, depression. I mean, I can go on prostate health. A T level in a man, to me, is a great predictor of his overall health. It's the best test I can get in a man. So I think that all men, when they come in, at least, I think, at least – if they are symptomatic, you screen them no matter what. But at 40, it's good to have at least a baseline of what's his T-level. Because at 50, if there's a 50% reduction, even though he's at 400, it may be a lot of a drop for him. you know. And so that's not his norm. So I think that getting the T-level is extremely important. My wish, though, is that we talked about the three different types of therapy – And my wish is that we focus more on lifestyle modification, because if I improve your lifestyle modification and I raise your natural T levels, I'm actually improving your heart, your lungs, your blood pressure, your diet. I mean, I'm improving everything and not just your T. And to me, that's really, really important. We want to remember, we want to live the longest we can, but the healthiest we can, right? And so... When you hit an age of, let's say, 80, you want to be way above everyone else so that when your slope starts to decline, you have a cushion, and you want that slope to be very mild. You don't want a steep slope, and that's what you're hoping for, and that's where the diet and exercise and sleep and stress today pays you later. It keeps you that delta with the slow slope later on. If you decide at 75, I start wanting to be healthy, it's a little late, just a little late.
0: Yeah, I love it. It's such good advice. I want to plug real quick your and Dr. Morgan Teller's testosterone course that you guys hold every single year. And I took it remotely last year, incredibly high yield for treating men. I have tons of providers, nurse practitioners, PAs that listen to this podcast. If you guys are at all interested in knowing more about how to manage testosterone, both in in men and women, because you guys cover it all in your course, I want to plug that course here. Do you know what 2024 dates yet?
1: Uh, we do have the dates. i to look it up, but I know it's, I think it's February of 2024. Great course. It's in Florida, but, uh, but, uh, but
0: you can take it remote, hopefully, because that's how I did it. Yes. Very high yield.
1: Yeah. He's put on this course now for 20 years. I mean, over he started it at Harvard. It used to be called the Harvard Men's Health Course. And then he brought it to Florida. Um, and he's just done an amazing job with this course.
0: We've I've been we've been playing phone tag to try to get him on the podcast. I've got his wife booked to do a podcast episode. Yeah, she she did she does amazing, amazing lectures in in that course for sex med.
1: Yeah, she's really good. She's really, really good.
0: Anything else that you want my people to know about health, hormones, testosterone, men's sexual function?
1: When we talk about sexual function, I just want to remember that majority of men who suffer from sexual dysfunction don't say a word. 50% don't even speak to their doctor. A very nice study came out last year showing that 44% of those men don't even tell their wives. Now, you'd say, well, how do you tell? not tell your partner? You avoid it, right? So basically sort of avoiding it's, it's sex. And that gets really depressing for many of these patients. It very fast, and it caused a lot of stress. And so, the reality is that sexual dysfunction, as you know, is easy to treat. We can treat this. You just have to seek help. And so, my, my wish is that patients who are suffering in silence realize that they don't have to suffer in silence and that there are great treatment options that are effective out there for them.
0: Awesome. And talk to your partner. And talk to your doctor. They care. And then the partner will start thinking you're not attracted to her and that nefarious things are happening and it goes bad very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is great. I'll put all the, all the links in the show notes so people can find you more after
1: this. Thank you so much for having me on, Kelly.
0: One more shout out to our sponsor, Addie, the little pink pill for women. See full prescribing info, medication guide, and box warning for severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings. Addy.com slash PI. Please go to Addy.com to learn more. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of You Are Not Broken. If you want to dig deeper with me, sign up for my adult sex education masterclass where you learn adult things like communication skills, anatomy lessons, and desire types, and how to talk to your doctor about sexual health concerns. If you want the Adult Sex Education Masterclass for free, join my monthly membership for more in-depth, exclusive content, more time with yours truly, a private podcast, coaching, and educational empowerment. And you can watch my interviews live and get them immediately without advertising. Head over to www.kellycaspersonmd.com for the Membership and Adult Sex Ed Masterclass. Members get the Masterclass for free. This podcast is presented solely for educational, entertainment, and informational purposes only. I am a doctor, but not your doctor in this format, and all of my platforms and guests, including on this podcast, are not giving individual medical advice or practicing medicine. See and consult with your own care team for your individual needs and concerns. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for the care and advice of a physician, therapist, or other qualified professional. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine, in case you were curious about that, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. But I still love you. Using the information on this podcast or any of my platforms is at your own risk. Until next time, remember, you are not broken.